0: Okay. Okay. All right. So, welcome, welcome everybody to this new episode of the Coffee Breakdown podcast. Uh, today, the new guest is uh, Tobias Kerks, who recently got his uh, PhD at uh, Ruhr University Bochum in, Gen- in Germany. And uh, actually, Tobias and I are colleagues. And he is also the winner of the GC 2022 award uh, uh, last year. Yeah. And um, uh, I'm, I'm really glad to talk with you. Toby is one of the experts uh, in my view of uh, surface science, uh, molecular dynamics, uh, machine learning, and so on. So, and this will be also the topic of uh, today's conversation. So thank you, Toby, for accepting the invitation for your time and so on.
1: Thanks very much for the super kind introduction and for having me.
0: Yeah, so uh, we would like uh, so let's start uh, maybe talking a little bit about you. So, how did you get interested into, uh, in general, machine learning, or into even plasma research? Because what you do is also related to plasma.
1: Well, actually, it's was vice awesome. versa. Mm-hmm. So, in the very beginning, I kind of got interested in a method like molecular dynamics. Okay, so a totally different topic nothing to do with plasma at all. And just after finishing my master thesis, I got a job offer like for my PhD time or becoming a PhD student. And this involved the plasma surface interactions. So this is like the very first time plasma emerged into my life, so to say. And so we developed a concept for project and we pursued the idea. And then on this, let's say, journey of exploring plasma software interactions, we just, like the whole team, um, had the idea to mingle in some machine learning. That was just a trial at the very beginning. So it could be useful, could be nice. And the more we started to, let's say, dive into the topic to learn more, we started to understand that this is actually a huge deal and could be of great value for Let's say plasma surface interactions and the way we understand them and the way we model them.
0: Okay, okay. Maybe uh, soon we we'll talk a little bit more about the details. So, you mm-hmm. already introduced uh, actually, we already introduced this terminology of molecular dynamics. Mm-hmm. So, actually, in this channel, we already talked about plasma surface interaction, but not all the people that study this use molecular dynamics. So, can you explain us a, a little bit what this is?
1: Oh, of course, of course. So actually, molecular dynamics, it sounds very fancy, the name, I have to admit. But on the like on idea, it's fairly simple to understand. Assume that you want to describe a system on the atomic level. So you have a lot of atoms. And usually, you don't care about the electrons. So you just consider them as atom balls. Mm-hmm. And you simply assume these are classical particles. So we do not account for any quantum mechanical effects typically and what we simply do is we solve newton's equation of motion for the atoms so Mm -hmm. to some extent it's like mimicking like assuming atoms are just balls that move in time and space but the big difference between let's say billiard balls moving in a table or on a table and atoms are the forces between the atoms Mm -hmm. and the molecular dynamics what you typically do is that you spend quite some time to derive interaction potentials that define how the forces have to be described that are acting on the atoms. But once you have the forces, you simply evolve Newton's equation of motion for the atoms. And by doing this, you can study a variety of different topics, scenarios, applications.
0: Yeah, that is interesting because, for example, in my models uh, I used to deal mainly with cross-sections. That gives mm-hmm. a sort of probability of processes or particle interacting, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not really aware, what is the status of interaction potential, for example? Are them available for a large uh, number of materials, for example? Uh, I don't know, target and projectiles or different species? Uh, what is the... Yeah, the, the status of the field. Uh...
1: Yeah, um, it, it really depends on what you're interested in. Uh-huh. So overall, there's a lot of researchers that um, spent quite some resources and time on deriving such potentials, and they did an astonishing work, and there are continuously even more potentials, um, let's say, proposed. So uh-huh. of course, you can define different functional forms, so to some extent, these, these are just analytical equations often fairly complex Mm -hmm. with some parameters. And some potential functions are well-suited to describe certain materials. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, one is called embedded atom method, well-suited for only for metals. Mm -hmm. So it will be very bad for metal oxides, for instance. Then you have other potential functions to describe the metal oxides Mm -hmm. or silicon nitrides, and, and, and furthermore. (laughs) So overall. There are a lot of potentials and parameterizations available for a lot of systems,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it's always the most important first or zero step to check whether the potential that is available for your system, for your process, is valid. Mm-hmm. Because typically, when people set up such a potential, they have an application in mind. Mm-hmm. And they they don't just do it because they're generous. They usually set up such a potential and had parameterization um, to study a system on their own. You have to check whether you can transfer what they did to your task. Mm -hmm. And this can go well, but it can also be challenging.
0: So this means that uh, you have some macroscopic parameter that you can compare once you use this potential, or how do you check the validity, typically?
1: Mm, That that really depends, again, on the application, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say usually, you describe. Um, you can, of course, also describe fluids or gases, but often it's used to study, let's say, surfaces or solid state yeah. systems yeah. so complex systems. Um, so, what you typically first do is having a look, look at the lattice constant. So, really, uh-huh. the fundamental um, system properties like the lattice constants is the um, energy, the so the cohesive energy, for instance, of the system in its Profound or it's, um, mo- um, let's say energetically most favorable
0: mm-hmm. okay.
1: state. Really, the most favorable state. I mean, you can consider different configurations, mm-hmm. crystal structures, and you can compare your prediction with the molecular dynamic simulation with quantum mechanical comput- computation, like density density function density mm-hmm. theory, and you should get a good agreement on these. Let's say basic properties and then you can ex- like proceed so for instance have a look at some dynamic properties energy barriers and yeah, yeah.
0: okay 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 that's interesting okay but uh, sorry i was interested into this uh this, this yeah. part so i wanted to dive a little bit into that but okay. so molecular dynamics uh, as you mentioned is a type of uh, uh it's a type of model that you can set up uh, to a, f- a physics based model, right? And you were mm-hmm. talking about machine learning as well, right? So, what is mm-hmm. uh, the difference actually between the two? Uh, so, physics based and data driven type of models?
1: That's actually a good question. Um, I would say the difference is it depends on the goal that you have in mind. So, what can you do with both models? Right. So, usually, in particular, right now, I would say for a lot of applications, a lot of systems, processes, there are already physics models available, mm-hmm. less or more accurate. And often we also have lots of data available from the simulation or from experiments, or we can generate data by either method. Mm-hmm. And it becomes um, interesting when you have take into account whether you have a lot of data or limited data, and whether you have a physics model or there's none. Yeah. So let's say in our case, we have a model available, molecular dynamics, and you can study a certain process. And then you also have some data, some experimental data, for instance. This means we could combine both so we could complement the physics model to be more accurate. Mm-hmm. And other thing is, I mean, we didn't talk about this, and we don't have to dive into this, but depending on what you want to study, molecular dynamics are quite computational demanding.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it can easily take months to perform a certain simulation. So with machine learning, you can drastically accelerate the time that is required to make a prediction for a certain let's say property or evolution for a given effect. Yeah, so yeah. you can become more realistic and at the same time increase the um, performance. Uh And a pure data-driven model, so when there's no physics model available, means we have no physics model, but with, let's say, quite some data available from, let's say, experiment, for instance, Uh this would allow us to still get a, let's say, correlation or some idea about the process, some insight that helps us to understand and decide which of Mm -hmm. course is not ideal, ideally would like to understand everything and prove it with a model. But if that's not possible right now, it's great that we can use a data driven model Mm -hmm. to help us, to guide us. That's how I would say these two go away.
0: That's true. That is also something I haven't thought about, but that is is true, that you could in principle derive the physics relations uh, Without knowing the model a priori, but simply starting from the data, yeah. so so sort of uh, not the physics, but in terms of like the the governing equations, somehow. So for, for for example, there is a very simple example. You know of um, uh, you know you can solve the Newton's equation of motion to have the trajectory of a ball that you can kick. Mm-hmm. Or you can try many, many times, right? To to try to to throw a ball, and the computer, of course, maybe, or even even a child, you know, who does, a, who, who tries to t- throw the ball, it doesn't know about the Newton's equation of motion. It's just by trials and errors, mm-hmm. and eventually, yes, uh, without knowing that, you can figure out uh, the maybe the governing equation as well. I'm thinking about application in plasma, for example, for anomalous transport, where maybe we don't have a governing model. But mm-hmm. uh, it could be that uh, using a data-driven approach, uh, you still have accurate results.
1: Yeah. So of course, um, it would be great. It's always good, from my point of view, to combine both worlds. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really nice, right? In the simulation, you know everything, but you're not in the real world. And in the experiment, well, you usually don't know everything, but you're in the real world. So combining both yeah. worlds is really powerful. But of course, if you cannot do, if the simulation is simply, a model simply does not exist, mm-hmm. I think it's still great that we can to some extent, rely on data-driven approaches to improve and get insight.
0: Yeah, true. Okay. Sometimes also we talk about machine learning, deep learning, and so on, and these are used as synonym. Uh, is it really like
1: that, or is it better to call deep learning, uh, what you do? Yeah, I mean, um, well, to some extent, it is a synonym mm-hmm. when you do deep learning. So usually machine learning is, let's say, um, a higher level description for Deep learning artificial neural networks, but also a lot of other different topics. It's like really a top level. um, What's the word a top level word or let's say, you may know what I mean to describe a lot of different methods. So I think, um, and I think some, to some extent, people are sometimes surprised that what they have done for years, maybe, or briefly is actually machine learning So for instance, I know that you in your past did MPCA mm-hmm. so principal component analysis, and this is also considered as machine learning. Yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of different let's say methods available that pursue different tasks, in machine learning, and one of which is called deep learning, or artificial neural networks. So these are really two synonyms, but it's just let's say one let's mm-hmm. say, one piece of the whole picture
0: okay okay let's try to give some concrete example because uh, you know uh, sometimes it's it seems a lot vague you know yeah we do machine learning and we get something nice something fast you know and so I would like to you to tell us something also based on your experience on your work like how can realistically we can use machine learning, to derive some more knowledge, some more, or some, you know, computational advantages uh, in first surface kinetics uh, type of application. So uh, can yeah. you tell us, uh, how did you start uh, with your work? What was your first application? And how did you tackle the challenges?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I have to be against stress that this is not like solely my work, okay, yeah. in preparation with, let's say other guy, other people other scientists, (laughs) of course. Uh, But the way we started was, as I mentioned previously, simply give it a test. Mm -hmm. So what we did is um, we considered a very basic process, let's say a very simple one. Mm -hmm. So um, the sputtering of a target, for those that are familiar with it, it just simply means you have an iron hitting a material, the target material. It called spawns a collision cascade. And this leads to the emission of particles, material. And this is used in the end to deposit a certain thin film. And we started with simply a sputtering process for metal, which I would consider a fairly simple process. And this allows us to move from the molecular dynamic simulations away to also more simpler but more resource efficient method. And this then allowed us to set up a data set. So we generated data with this more simple model, a lot of data, because it's more simpler and hence just a few days were sufficient to actually generate a quite substantial data set. Mm-hmm. And then we performed this kind of, okay, let's say, case study to study different kinds of energies like impulse, kinetic impulses and um, um, also different shapes of the ion energy distribution function, like how they Ions are sampled form, and the interesting part is then that we performed this kind of case study twice. So once uh-huh. with a high resolution, like a nice statistics, which allowed us to predict oh, yeah. like how the particles are moved quite nicely, and once we performed like just less kind of particle measurements, uh-huh. and this then has a rather noisy statistics. So it's really bad. And the idea was that we want to mimic the accuracy of molecular dynamic simulations (laughs) without really performing molecular dynamic simulations because we weren't sure whether it's worth it at this point. And then we used this noisy data set. We used it to perform a most simple machine learning or artificial neural network, which is called multi-layer perceptron. And we used it to make predictions for the particles that are emitted from the surface. Uh-huh. And we found that like the any energy angular distribution function of these emitted particles were actually almost congruent with those high statistical reference data.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So all of a sudden we found out that simply using this kind of machine learning model allowed us to, or allows us to perform way less Surface simulations, but with such a post-processing or complementation, um, we can gain the same statistical outcome in the end, the same results.
0: Okay, okay, yeah, that is uh, interesting. So, but this is an application uh, that. Um, well, well, first of all, let let me ask uh, because. Uh, a lot of people may be a bit confused or so on. So when you talk about machine learning model, can, can you explain us some different type of architectures? Mm. So w- what are we talking about?
1: I think the one which probably most are familiar with, or at least have seen a picture, is mm-hmm. that you have some nodes. Yeah. And these are interconnected with lines. Mm-hmm. And these lines represent, say, connection between the nodes, like an info- information processing by a non by a non-linear function, uh-huh. and, and furthermore. I think we don't have to go to the detail. But how it works is that you have, in a multi-layer perceptron, multiple layers, that's what the name stands for,
0: yeah.
1: and each of these layer contains a certain number of nodes. And then the information is simply processed from the left, where you have your input nodes, uh-huh. to some hidden layers with nodes, to the right, where your output nodes is. And then this is simply a regression model from the input to the output, mm-hmm. an information yeah. process, but all these small lines and all these individual nodes.
0: Okay. Okay. And this is essentially the the type of model that you used for um, the type of architecture that you used for your model.
1: Exactly. Okay, exactly. okay. Of course, you can also do more. Let's. I mean, we talked about this um, this energy angular distribution, mm-hmm. and of course, you can understand these as really as energy angular distribution functions, mathematical functions, or just pure sequence of data. Mm-hmm. But these, you can also understand it as an image. So on the y-axis, you have, for instance, the angle on the x-axis Yeah, and, yeah. And, and furthermore. And if you have such an image, you can also say, okay, maybe we want to use an image processing tool, mm-hmm. like a machine learning for image processing. And this is where, for instance, convolutional neural networks or convolutional Mm -hmm. layers come into play. So we move, you define a kernel and you move this kernel over the image. And then you define multiple kernels. And by doing this and putting them in a sequence, you can extract features from Mm -hmm. the image. And what we did is, or what one can do is, for instance, to combine such a convolutional neural network architecture with an outer encoder, mm-hmm. the outer encoder is simply, uh, means you have the same input and output. So mm-hmm. the network tries to reconstruct itself, like mm-hmm. the, the same information, Yeah. but you can find a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. So the information has to be processed or yeah, has to go through such a bottleneck and not all information can bypass this bottleneck mm-hmm. and still the network This autoencoder tries to reconstruct the original information and hence only the most important, the key information are contained in the very end. And this helps to achieve a generalization
0: yeah, for me, this concept is very familiar because, as you know, uh, having tried uh, some some PCA, you know, there is this idea of dimensionality reduction, right? right. And then from this uh, sort of reduced space or latent space, then you mm-hmm. try to go to the original space to map uh, back uh, to the to the original spaces. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, so so in fact, uh, this is probably a more sophisticated idea where you mm-hmm. can have more complex model, this variation autoencoder, even nonlinearities within your system, if I'm correct uh,
1: yeah, I mean, um, I think actually it's it's not that you mentioned or that you mentioned PCA, because I think it's um, a good idea to simply start with PCA. Mm-hmm. And maybe what you get from it is already sufficient. So why use a super, com- like why set up a complicated artificial neural network when PCA yields sufficient or exaltry, say, exaltry. enough results? But sometimes say is not sufficient for what you want to do. Then, you mentioned it, the non-linearities and the additional degrees of freedom yeah, can yeah. actually become quite handy and allow for what you're looking for.
0: Yeah, okay, this is very interesting. I mean, uh, f- from this work uh, from the, that you described, from what I understand, there are two interesting concepts, in my opinion. And it's just One is that uh, is a concept that is very uh, common in plasma physics where you want to have for example lookup tables for different conditions of parameters. Mm-hmm. And uh, one challenge is to have a very large lookup tables right that can become expensive if you want to interpolate between those. Another one is that you can do a little bit more because you can generalize uh, uh, on on data. For example, if you have noisy distribution function, you can get a a bit more smooth function. So even obtain information on the tail that is not really possible if you do kind of interpolation between points. Um, So I I don't know. So I think this is a little bit more information that we can get, uh, in my opinion. So you tried also for larger, uh, a larger set of data, if I'm correct, right? Where you change also stoichiometry in your work and so on. So can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So after um, moving, or well, after having this like, successful experience in this first part, we thought, OK, this is great. Let's move on. Let's let's try more with this. And we did exactly what uh, you mentioned. So we still only had a look at the sputtering for target. Actually, it was a composite target like of two metals. And we varied the stoichiometry. Mm-hmm. The idea was let's see whether we can introduce an, let's say, basic system state that describes the surface into the model. Still, we mm-hmm. had in mind in the long term we want to move to a molecular dynamics, which provides us not just the stoichiometry but a huge yeah. list of properties for surface. So. Is this kind of preliminary preliminary or basic system state or helpful? Uh, Does it work? That's also a good question. So we moved on to this scenario of having different stoichiometries, But we also moved on with the machine learning architecture. Mm -hmm. And we actually did exactly what I mentioned earlier. That is, we now consider convolutional neural networks Mm -hmm. to process the energy angular distributions as an image. And we also use an autoencoder, specifically a variational autoencoder, to, in the first step, have a dimensionality reduction of the information of the spotted particles. And then in the second step, set up a so a gate model or regression model, which maps the incident ion energies and the stoichiometry mm-hmm. of the composite target to the output energy angle distribution functions. And this was quite nice, because this showed us, and it worked out quite, quite very nice, so but aside from this, it was nice because such a different architecture allowed us to significantly reduce the number of internal degrees of freedom. Mm-hmm. I think in the end, for this very, very final surrogate model, around about one percent or less than a percent was was actually trained. Yeah, okay, okay. Mm-hmm all right
0: yeah and and this is here and there is also a concept that people you know ask themselves how good is uh, uh, this model to extrapolate to get data out of uh, you know the 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 comfort uh, region let's say so
1: so commonly you say in machine learning i think you can read it over and over again that interpolation, is quite nice. You mentioned yeah, this yeah. that's what you have in mind. And I think that's what most people do is to use it for generalization when you have noisy data mm-hmm. and interpolation. And extrapolation is typically discouraged. So people yeah. usually say, don't do this. This doesn't work well. And we were aware of this, but we wanted to test it to see okay, whether okay. There's this. I mean, we didn't really think it's wrong, but we wanted to see how bad is bad. Uh So, when we set up the different stoichiometries, we consider all of them from 0 to 1, so we have a pure aluminum target, or a pure titanium target, but also all in between, or some in between, but we only train with a subsection. Uh And we specifically left some of those cases out, some for testing, Uh after the model has been trained, for interpolation, so between the supporting centers these were really well, the model performed nice, and some outside of the training data set. And here we see that quite um, visually um, intuitive, we can quite clearly see that extrapolation doesn't work. So it it was no surprise, but it was just, let's say, um, Yeah, just to
0: Affirmation concept. for us. To exactly. not it. Okay, okay. But are there methods uh, that can be used to, let's say, tackle this problem, for example? Uh, I don't know. For example, I, I heard about the active learning, stuff like that, but uh, I, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on the architecture and also on the problem you're studying. So there are actually some models for some scenarios which are possible yeah. to extrapolate for, to some extent. For instance, when you are use machine learning model to predict the time series, okay, you can actually, to some extent, extrapolate uh-huh. if done properly. Um, but here, what you're referring to is, let's say, the more promising approach is uh-huh. if you're extrapolating, simply get more data.
0: Yeah, so, that is not really extrapolation at that point. Uh, but yeah, probably. But, but
1: active learning means that you would have, let's say, a cycle of um, of having training your machine learning model with available data. Yeah, and um, seeing where it performs bad. So where are the small insecure about? And then you generate more data in particular to support the model so where it needs data so you're not just randomly generate data all over the place but exactly where it's required mm-hmm. so that's what okay. we really okay. bypassing extrapolation but the way to tackle it I'd say
0: mm-hmm. okay okay interesting yeah and then at some point you mentioned also about this molecular dynamics and yeah. so were you successful to apply this model also to molecular dynamics uh, simulation
1: Well, this was, um, to to be honest, now, really, Uh frankly, I was skeptical doing it the first time because with this sputtering simulations, we Uh got easily huge data sets and still with statistical um, challenging representation of the energy angle distributions, Uh but when doing molecular dynamics, suddenly we had still statistically challenging Representations of okay. physical processes, but also way less data. So, oh, okay. whether this is still working or mm-hmm. not. Yeah. So, this is really what I wanted to check. Um, in addition, we also now, since we apply molecular dynamics, thought we can generalize the wall interactions. So, studying the sputtering at the target and the growth at mm-hmm. the substrate. And the idea was now to perform for pure meta- metallic case, such molecular dynamic simulations. Okay. Again, using, choosing a rather simple scenario and setting up the data set
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then train a model and see whether it works. Again, we also moved on for the machine learning mode like the architecture um, instead of using an autoencoder. And combine it with another regression model. We then actually moved on to what we call the physics separated artificial neural network. Mm -hmm. And this is okay. Yeah, this is
0: very interesting because you are you are going in fact to a more and more complex uh, model, physics based model. But it seems that also the complexity of your machine learning model should increase. Is it is it like that
1: or? Honestly, I would say that's not, not it, it, again, it depends on the application, mm-hmm. but I would say it's rather for us a learning experience. Okay. So we started with the, we had no clue in the beginning of about machine learning. Yeah. And yeah. Started, therefore with basic process, which is really simple and the basic machine learning model or artificial neural networks, simply we were not experienced with this one. So let's not think about the more complex one. Yes. And yes. While slowly increasing the physical complexity, um, we also complementary, increased the complexity of the machine learning model, simply because we felt more secure, more experienced with what we're doing. And we had new ideas what we can do. Mm -hmm. So for us, I think it was honestly just a learning experience which then showed us new ways to go okay
0: but then what, what is the advantage of this new architecture for example with respect to the previous one
1: yeah it's um so the, the basic idea was to subdivide the physics
0: uh-huh.
1: to separate them in this case to separate the damage that is created by the ion bombardment on the atomic level to the relaxation of the damage. So a translation from from the damage to, for instance, Uh composition, stress, density, and furthermore. And we can make a cut. And such a cut, for instance, um, reduces the dimensionality of the parameter space. Okay. And it was also an interesting test for us because I mentioned in this former work this basic system state. Uh-huh. this stoichiometry now we define a surface state that was fairly complex it's cons- I can't really recall how many properties were in there but fairly complex surface state and a description of the mm-hmm. defect structure and the idea was that we establish for one of the physical processes so the ion bombardment induced damage one uh-huh. regression model and for the other physical process, so the translation of the damage to the properties in other regression model. Okay. And they hand over a description of the surface state and mm-hmm. the other one tries to um, express the defect structure as a function of the surface state. So,
0: so these also, are two networks that are communicating with each other somehow.
1: Exactly. Okay. And they are alternating between Mm -hmm. defect structure and surface state.
0: Yes, okay, okay, okay. So in principle, if you have a multi-physics type of problem, you can train different networks that Mm kind of connect with each other. But one network kind of encloses information about only one part of the physics. so Something like that.
1: Exactly, that was the main idea. Mm -hmm. Um, But what was nice about this is that I mean, there were some works that hinted towards the circumstance that both of which yes. surface state, defect structure, are sufficient to describe the system. Mm-hmm. But we were not clear about this. I mean, yes. how do we how to know whether this is really true? And by handing this information over from one to another mm-hmm. and evolving the whole process in time and still having agreement between the prediction and the reference data, we could show that actually both of which are um, allow for a complete system description.
0: And this is really okay. nice
1: because, of course, it's nice to show that you can use this descriptor, these descriptors. It's maybe nice for a guy like me doing simulations. But what's really cool about this is that, and we come back to something we talked about in the very beginning,
0: uh-huh.
1: if you know for this process have simulation and experimental data, in the simulation we know everything we know the surface state and the defect structure Mm -hmm. in the experiment well they can actually set up the surface state so the mass density the composition and the stress these are things they can measure Mm -hmm. but the atomic defect structure the way we define it this is not accessible in the experiment I see
0: I see and somehow you hide it within the architecture
1: exactly exactly and this allows us then in the Final model to simultaneously train with simulation data and experimental data, in spite of a discrepancy regarding the information accessibility.
0: I see. Okay, okay, that's uh, that's interesting. Okay, I would like uh, maybe to conclude because here we are entering like really kind of technical part. Yes, yes. So recently you have uh, published a work uh, on the journal of physics d of uh, applied Mm -hmm. physics uh, titled physics separating artificial neural networks for predicting spattery and thin film deposition of aluminum nitride in argon nitrogen discharges on experimental time scales so so it's very long title but uh, okay i would like you to very briefly discuss this work. Because I've read that I think it's very interesting, especially if you can bridge, uh, explain how did you manage to bridge uh, you know, timescales that are very short, the typical molecular dynamics simulation to experimental timescales or minutes even. Yeah.
1: So there was still a shortcoming of this former work is Mm -hmm. that given the small data set, we could actually not bridge the timescale. And this, this is why we moved on to even a more challenging system, the reactive spot deposition, which of course is also more interesting for the application. And think about how actually how can we finally tackle these timescale bridging. And the answer is I would say twofold. And the most important part is actually the data generation. Mm-hmm. And this okay. is where a new idea actually led to a change of perspective. Mm-hmm. So what we did is to still use molecular dynamics to generate the data. So we use it actually to study the plasma-surface interactions and the diffusion processes. But we do this now in a randomized manner. So we continuously randomize the species that are hitting the surface. They continuously randomize the ion energies and the temperatures of the diffusion process in one simulation. This means we define a circle, but the whole um, trajectory we are evolving in time is actually quite meaningless. It makes no sense. But the nice part is that this allows us to populate the parameter space Mm -hmm. super effectively if we consider each individual impingement as data point.
0: So essentially, uh, correct me if I'm wrong or maybe I have a wrong interpretation, your physics-based model is a sequence of impingements uh, from molecular dynamics uh, and some sort of surface reorganization of the atom configuration. Is it like that? And Can then you... You, you randomly you randomly select your input parameters or your, your configuration even of your surface.
1: Yeah, that's actually we randomize all of, of it. OK, OK. So we also the input parameters, but also the initial surface state. So yeah. The dec- yeah. Are randomly organized or randomly chosen to really properly um pop- populate the whole parameter space that we consider interesting for or okay. could be interesting for the application in the end. Yes. And then we use the data now that's well spread in the parameter space to set up again a physics separating artificial neural network.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But this time we do other another um kind of separation between the plasma-surface interaction Mm -hmm. and the diffusion. Okay,
0: surface diffusion here we are talking about.
1: Actually, we're talking about bulk diffusion.
0: Bulk diffusion, okay.
1: I mean, this is uh, quite interesting that you mentioned this because what you could do, of course, is Uh to have not just two separations, but you could also now do the third one with surface diffusion. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But at this point, we just consider plasma-surface interaction and bulk diffusion. Mm -hmm. And we again train two individual regression models and have them coupled, individual like all together, to establish such a, such a circle. Mm-hmm. And then we pass on the system state description from one to another, and this allows us to evolve in time the system state for ongoing bombardment or impingement of ions and particles, neutrals, for different kind of surface orientations.
0: Yes, yes. So, so well, one question that uh, I know it, it came up from, from this work is really, how do you assign uh, time from, from this process, right? Yeah. So uh, the, this is actually quite quite common in molecular dynamics, how you bridge uh, these, these very long uh, time scales actually, between one impingement and the other.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a matter of perspective, right? Um, I know that from the plasma point of view, it is different than from the yeah. a surface science or material scientist's point of view, for the surface side, you can really see it's just a series of impingements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And given, a, for instance, simulation or experiment where you know the flux towards the surface or can estimate it mm-hmm. of the different species, and you know the area, it's like a surface area of your molecular dynamics simulation Mm-hmm. You can, of course, assess a certain time that is bypassed from one impingement to the other. Yes. This does not necessarily mean we resolve the whole time span, but um, to some extent you could. I mean, the thing is, the way we resolve the diffusion processes, actually not with molecular dynamics, but Monte Carlo, but I think going into detail yeah. would uh, totally. Um, be too much for this podcast mm-hmm. but the way you could also do it is is to call this diffusion not just once but to have it like call it like 10 times or furthermore to really um, try to resolve all the different steps individually we just found out that it's not necessary for our application
0: yes yes and so this is a very interesting outcome because uh you can uh, simply by data generation, this randomized uh, way that you described, uh, you can describe, uh, you can associate this to a dynamic uh, problem. And this is something that is qu- quite uh, new to me, So, a sort of time evolution of the system. That you, you cannot, of course, perform a molecular dynamics for minus time scale or something like that, right? But if you know your configuration of the system and sort of your probability of reorganizing a certain way after an event, okay. then you can actually evolve your system from one state to another. Okay, this is maybe this is maybe more accurate than saying time evolution.
1: It's actually evolution from one state to another. That's true. I just think, so I absolutely agree with you, I just think assigning a time to this makes it more comparable. Yeah, yeah, to also run simulations, but more importantly, maybe also to those who do experiments, because all of a sudden, you can reach process times of minutes, hours, and this allows then the comparison of, well, your simulation, your predictions with the experiment in not in real time, maybe, but still for realistic process times.
0: Okay, then one uh, question because I'm quite intrigued by this. So what do you think uh, are the outcomes for this work? Do you see the applicability also to other systems in plasmas or, or this method uh, itself?
1: Yeah, absolutely, actually. So um, I think the whole topic, and I think this is not new to anybody, of machine learning and mm-hmm. plasma, but Frankly, also in all other science sciences, I guess science topics um, is emerging fast and is growing and growing and growing. And I I'm fairly positive that such a method, such a concept, will can easily be transferred and will be transferred to other plasma processes that involve plasma surface interaction, Mm -hmm. which actually most of which do, most of them do. Like, for instance, you could consider catalysis. Mm -hmm. or plasma-enhanced chemical vapor deposition but also those processes at atmospheric pressure involve surfaces and actually those are even more complex and at these cases in these cases such an approach from my point of view could be even more promising but yeah -hmm. yeah, please
0: (laughs) no 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 because you know this is uh, interesting because a lot of times we ask okay what, what can is uh, is machine learning really useful, right? So of course, I mean, this question comes from someone, you know, like me doing physics-based model, right? And I see machine learning as a tool, but I want the tool sometimes to give me more information than what I can get normally from my model, right? Mm. And so I would like to have your opinion on that. So in the world of plasma physics more generally, so these methods for sure are spreading. So you see also in conferences, many people now start to apply. So do you think machine learning can give an added value so they can provide more information that cannot be uh, obtained by the physics based model?
1: Um, absolutely. Yes, I think they can. I they just, can, yes. just, just, just think it's not necessarily simple to achieve this. Mm-hmm. So consider our oh, work. We spend years on this. And we yeah, yeah. a series of methods, but just in the very end, we succeeded with bridging the time scales. Mm-hmm. And this allowed us to, for instance, assess and study the effect of rare events on the evolution of thin film properties
0: yeah.
1: on the atomic level molecular dy- with molecular dynamics fidelity. Yeah. This information, well, you can do such a simulation with molecular dynamics, but you don't know where to look mm-hmm. simply because you cannot resolve these time scales with MD. Yes. So this actually allowed us to learn something which we were not aware of. At least we guessed it maybe, but we could not prove it. Mm-hmm. So it can give an added value. Certainly. I just think that it's not necessarily easily, easy to achieve this, but that's also fine. I think mm-hmm. it's super fine to just start with a generalization of noisy data or with the interpolation, because all of these kind of problems help you to get used to the model and to this idea. And I think this is very beneficial. And in the long term, I think then, perspectives and ideas will come naturally that show you where you can apply and how you can apply the method or other methods that are related to gain such added benefit.
0: Yeah, so yeah there there is a lot of things uh, you know the the fidelity of the model that you're starting that you're generating your data mm-hmm. and also the the machine learning model that you're using and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh so you, you know it's also difficult to think wh- where do you want to spend mo- most of your time, you know, if you have limited time, do you want to get more familiar with the, all the different machine learning models that exist mm-hmm. uh, Do you want to expand a bit more on the fidelity of the physics-based model? Recently, I see a lot of application also coming from fusion uh, on plasma control, where uh, you don't you don't have maybe high fidelity model. Mm. You start maybe from a lower fidelity model, but validated with experiment. Mm. Then you generate a lot of data, and you train machine learning model to have a real-time control, for example. Mm. Then this is an application where I think uh, you know you can get fast model, I think, from machine learning.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the end, maybe not for controlling, but this is also what we did, right? We started with a yeah. simple model, mm-hmm. which gives us a lot of data. And I think that's, if you are new to this topic, a really nice way to go that um, if you want to deal with machine learning, I think it's a good idea to some yeah. extent, at least. Um, that you are not at the same time try to already do the highly complex, super time-demanding simulations or experimental experimental setups. Maybe start with something simple that gets you a lot of data. Then you can always do some machine learning with this and apply artificial neural networks. Mm -hmm. And then maybe in a similar way we did it, gradually move on to more complex methods and more complex applications. And of course, you will hear other people that do a very fancy machine learning techniques. Mm-hmm. And you will maybe directly want to, let's say, apply them to your um, system, which is fine. But I still think, think that just as a step by step process is really beneficial. Yes.
0: Yeah, I really like it, in fact, but in fact, as you're learning every new technique, you should not start, you know, like from very difficult uh, goal but you know start learning step by step that is the best approach yeah this is true okay that is very interesting I would like to ask you maybe to conclude maybe there are also some students watching this podcast and so on are interested to learn a bit more about these topics so do you have some suggestion or material where they can start uh, um, about you know machine learning or things like that
1: yeah sure I mean There, that's quite nice. A lot of um, different uh, programs available that we also used, and that makes it really nice to get started with this topic, like we used, for instance, like the TensorFlow and Keras environment. Mm -hmm. And this is really nice because it's well documented. It's written in Python, so it's fairly simple to get used. So Python
0: is the programming language to go that you think uh, if you want to do machine learning at this moment.
1: Um, well, they are certainly also more, but I think if you are starting with this and you've never done it before, I mean, it's nice because it's also, it's not like dealing with two things at once. I mean, if you use a more complex uh, program language, this, everything becomes more, let's say, encrypted. So it's not that intuitive to yeah. understand your code, maybe. And if you just get started, I think it could be an, an added obstacle compared to Python, which is, well, nice to read and, Easy to implement and gives you uh-huh. quick, nice results. So I would really recommend those two, but they are way, way more, like um, which are suitable and they're not worse, not necessarily better, but I mean they're lots to choose from. But it's what well, I think is really nice for these kind of codes, but also others, that you have a really active um, community. Uh-huh. So when you have questions or you're uncertain about something. Really, Google is your friend, and you can find so many nice solutions. And typically, somebody else encountered a similar problem, mm-hmm. and you can learn from this. And I think this really gives you a nice kickstart. But of course, there are also sorry, go No, go no, out. no.
0: <laughs> please continue. The, yeah.
1: I mean, there are also a series of books that are available that <laughs> you can have a look at. And um, like, for instance, I have. Found one that I would like to highlight mm-hmm. um, from Aurelio Geron. I hope I have spelled okay. his name. Uh, we can put
0: the link in the description anyway. So yeah,
1: that's perfect. Let's do it like this. That's maybe more convenient. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, maybe so you can
0: so say the title. What is the title yeah. of the book?
1: The title of the book is Hands-On Machine Learning with okay. scikit-learn, Keras, and TensorFlow: concept Concepts, Tools, and Techniques to Build intelligent systems.
0: Okay, okay. And uh, also, I like really much your approach uh, sort of bottom-up, if you want to call it like that, because I have a lot of friends also interested to, you know, try some stuff with machine learning and so on. But they have the idea, yeah, but I need a very powerful computer. I need, you know, to have a large storage mm-hmm. system because I need a lot of data to do interesting stuff, you know. And I don't have, I don't have a GPU, for example. So mm-hmm. can you... What, uh, what do you recommend for that? Do, you, do I really need a really large setup, very expensive, or can I try to learn the basics even from my laptop?
1: Absolutely from laptop. Actually, I'd say um, the majority, so maybe around about 75% of the machine learning work that we just discussed was done with a laptop. So, in the very end, we moved on to a class like to a cell GPU. But for the most of those cases, we simply use the CPU in a laptop. Okay. So, okay. that's actually can be done quite nicely, I'd say.
0: Okay. So, I think uh, it's very interesting because uh, for me, I see it as new type of approaches. To try to tackle problems, there are many problems in plasma physics, uh, plasma chemistry, plasma surface interaction, and I think new methods uh, are uh, are very welcome in this uh, community. And uh, I would like to thank you, Toby, for this nice explanation of the different uh, parts. Very, you know, challenging, very detailed. And uh, with this, uh, I also want to say goodbye to you and also to all the audience. Uh, okay, and uh, see you soon.
1: Bye-bye.